We are here for our second session. We're going to talk about the Christian family. So we kind of end on this note of fruitfulness being the, the result of marriage. And that fruitfulness in the context of a marriage tends to result in children. Um, the logical progression from Christian marriage is family. Um, this is not read at every wedding. I mean, you know, for example, here we have a number of widows and widowers who get married a second time and they're both in their 60s, 70s, sometimes even 80s. So we wouldn't pray this at this wedding, but one of the prayers at the end of the marriage is, O Almighty God, creator of mankind, who art the wellspring of life, bestow upon these thy servants, if it be thy will, the gift and heritage of children, and grant that they may see their children brought up in thy faith and fear to the honor and glory of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, like I said, obviously we don't read that at every wedding, um, but it's, it's there and it reminds us of this purpose uh, of marriage. Resolution 13 of the Lambeth Conference of 1930 uh, affirms three important truths. The Lambeth Conferences, they still exist, but they've changed quite a bit as the Church of England and the Episcopal Church have changed. But in the 20th century, the Lambeth Conferences were kind of like uh, Catholic uh, councils. So questions would be brought to the Lambeth Conference, and there would be sort of theological solutions provided to them. So one of the questions in the early 20th century was, what do you do about birth control? And um, the, the Lambeth Conference has carved out a, a position similar to the Catholic Church's, but perhaps slightly more pastorally flexible, which was that to say basically that, that birth control is not an ideal, but there may be situations in which it could be used between married couples. Um, but the but the but the Lambeth Conference of 1930 affirms three really important truths. The first is they say the truth that sexual instinct is a holy thing implanted by God in human nature. That kind of that that desire is good. You know, I mean, that's I think really what Adam is expressing: bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's this kind of eros there that 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 desire to draw one into oneself. Um, so that's the first truth, that sexual instinct is holy and God-given. In other words, we don't think sex is icky, right? There are religions that do think that. We're not one of them. The second thing that it affirms is that intercourse between husband and wife as the consummation of marriage has a value of its own within that sacrament and that thereby married love is enhanced and its character strengthened. In other words, the two becoming one in that act is really important for the marriage itself, right? There's a closeness that comes through, uh, through that activity, and that's valuable. That closeness is a good thing. The third uh, thing that they affirm is that the primary purpose for which marriage exists is the procreation of children. The primary, uh, the Church of England has come along, has uh, not come a long way, they've diverged along pretty far from this now. Right, that is, this is back when they were Christians, that's correct. Exactly. So many don't realize this, but actually, so I mentioned earlier, you know, there are impediments to a valid marriage. Part of that is consent. Well, if a couple enters into a marriage intentionally deciding to never have children, that actually is an impediment that prevents the marriage from being sacramentally valid. Um, this does not mean that a couple is obligated to have as many children as possible. Pope Francis actually taught, was asked about this recently and said something like, well, the Christians aren't called to be rabbits, you know, necessarily. Um, but, but the idea that, that, that the couple should be open to the creation of life uh, is, is integral to what marriage is. 
We recognize, of course, and I think it's important to, to say this up front, that there are, there are plenty of instances where a family cannot be produced through biological means. This is not a moral deficiency on the part of either spouse. And there are also things like mixed families, and all the, which are quite beautiful and their own kind of ways of communicating the gospel, playing out the gospel in those contexts. But um, those are, in some ways, exceptions that prove the rule, um, which is that marriage should, uh, should have fruitfulness. Um, marriages that cannot produce children biologically can nevertheless build families in other ways, right? I mean, there's the idea, I mean, adoption would be one option or, uh, or even, even a kind of informal adopting of, of children, you know, within the, a parish or a community or neighborhood or something like that, you know, um, is, is a beautiful way for, for the spouse to, spouses to work together to realize that idea of fruitfulness without necessarily having the biological means to do it themselves, so anyway, so uh, it's important to, to caveat those things, but we will be talking about uh, the, the connection between the biological fruitfulness and this idea of spiritual fruitfulness, not to exclude those who can't, but just to understand that that's the kind of the normal telos of, of what we're doing when we're talking about marriage. So in this session, what I want to do is, is explore the purpose of the Christian home by looking, first we'll start by looking at the state of the American family, then we'll look at a few scriptural examples of family, and then I want to talk about the home as a monastery. Um, which may be a strange way to, to frame it, but um, hopefully you'll see what I mean in a minute. So the state of the average American family, I think it's no secret that the percentage of Americans who are committed to their religion as evidenced by regular church attendance is rapidly declining. From 2015 to 2020, Pew reported a 10% decline in people identifying as Christians as a whole. Uh, in 2021, Gallup found that 45% of Americans belong to a religious congregation of any sort, that's not just Christians. That includes uh, mosques, synagogues, and other houses of worship. Guess what the number, so 45%. What was the number in 1999, would you think? 65. A little higher. Oh, 75. A little lower. 70. 70. 70, yeah, 70%. For context, in 1937, 73% of Americans belong to a religious congregation. So from the year 1937 to 1999, there was a 3% decline. That's 60 years. From 1999 until 2020, so about 20 years, we've seen a decline of almost 25%. My generation... Oh, go ahead. Right. That's right. It's funny uh, how uh, that correlation exists, isn't it? Yeah, coincidence. Strange coincidence. My generation, the millennials, while not being straight-up atheistic, that would require too much fortitude for us, I think, are increasingly identifying as religiously unaffiliated, or what's called the nuns, but not in the good kind of nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. Spiritual. Spiritual. Exactly. I'm spiritual, not religious. Right. Yes, that's been really interesting, and I was going to mention that as a as a kind of caveat to all this that it's not all doom and gloom. That we're seeing Gen Zs in particular have started attending churches um, more enthusiastically and regularly than the previous two generations, Gen X and uh, Millennials. 
Um, and that is, in, and we're seeing that here, right? I mean, a lot of our younger folks who have been coming to church are Gen Z, not millennial. We have a few millennials, um, but Gen Z seems to be more enthusiastic. Our St. John students are Gen Z. Um, Aiden, the uh, guy who's in the Air Force, is Gen Z. So it's very interesting to see that because, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And and what's also interesting is that they tend to be attracted to a more robust, historically rooted, liturgical kind of faith than the sort of evangelical big box church, uh, you know, mega church style um, way of doing things. Um, but what does it mean that, that this is – because even, even if you do see the increase, it's not enough, at least not right now, and we can pray that God continues to work and, and, and make this bigger and bigger. But um, that increase that we're seeing right now does still not replenish the numbers nor bring things back to where they were 20 years ago. Um, and so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that families for the past three generations or so, maybe four, um, have failed to transmit Christianity to their children. It's really interesting to note that who in the family goes to church significantly impacts whether the next generation goes to church. So it's not just that there's someone in the family who's religious. In homes where just the mother goes to church, either because she's the only parent or because the father just simply has no interest in religion, the children are actually very unlikely to go to church. Very unlikely. Um, Whereas if the father goes to church, either with the wife or even just by himself, the chances that the children end up staying in the church are astronomically higher. I mean, mean mind-bogglingly higher. Um, So we're saying... After the children leave the home. Correct. When they grow up, they're, they're more likely to stay in the church and some as regular participants if the father goes to church. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. There is, of course, a caveat here, too, I think, which is to say that, you know, in, in many, in some cases, a child might decide to leave the faith for reasons totally unconnected to or uncontrolled by their parents. It may be that, that you have a really good parent who gives their kid everything that they would possibly need in order to stay in the church, and the kid still decides to leave the church. And so, you know, it's not to say that every parent who has kids who don't go to church is responsible for that fact. Um, it could just be that they have a rebellious child who has decided to suppress the truth. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's still nevertheless a reality that, that we do see this breakdown at such a proportion that it's not just a couple bad seeds. This is a systematic breakdown um, where families have not done a good job um, getting their children to go to church. Um, but like, I, like Kathy pointed out, you know, not all doom and gloom. We are seeing this pick up. I think some of that is just coming out of the pandemic. People are a little more comfortable visiting churches in general. But also, I think Gen Zs have, are, are really searching and looking for something. I mean, they're entering into a really important phase in their development, and they want something that's authentic and deep and rooted. Um, and so they're looking for that in, in churches. Speaking to the, in terms of the generations with names, mm. It would seem that my generation bought hook, line, and sinker into the idea that everything was new. Mm-hmm. The Marxist, however you want to put a name on it, Satan's plan to destroy the church. Do your own thing. Yeah, right, right. We passed it on very successfully to our children in their 40s and 50s who have passed it on 
to your generation. Mm -hmm. And we all bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yep. Didn't like it as much in the 90s and the aughts as we did in the 60s. Right. But we bought it. Yes. And it may just be that my grandchildren, great-grandchildren, are beginning to look at the world and say, you're lying. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you. And are a little bit more open to not buying the, the, the shine is off the do your own thing and it'll be great yep. story. Just a thought. No, I think you're exactly right about that. I mean, um, so when I taught literature in my school, when I was a teacher, um, there are lots of great books. And there are lots of books we could choose when you're developing a curriculum. We were intentional about picking books that had survived the test of time. The great books, the classic books. There are books being written now that are good books. And one day we'll probably be, be added to that list of great books. But where we stand, there's so much that's great that we can go backwards and look at. So I'm not going to waste my students' time by giving them a book that may or may not last the next 15, 20 years. Um, I mean, think about pop music, you know. The, what people were listening to 15 years ago, they're not listening to today. And don't even think about what they were listening to 15 years ago, most of the time. Except maybe, uh, you know, it comes on the oldies station every now and again now, right? So similarly, when it comes to our religious practices, what you saw in the 60s and 70s, I mean, in the Anglican tradition, it was the new prayer book. Um, and not, not all those changes were necessarily bad like Vatican II and the Catholic Church, was trying to do some really good things. But you often had a kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's old and stale, so let's do something new and exciting. And you end up really actually changing the message because the medium is the message, something we've talked about in the past. And so, yeah, so I think that now we're starting to, at least younger generations, and I think this is true for millennials who are in church, and I think it's also true for the Gen Zs, is that there is a kind of search for authenticity because they kind of see that the, that the, the hippie mass in the Catholic church or the, or the concert-style you know, megachurch is not authentic, and they want something that is, that has stood the test of time. Um, and so, yes, so, um, and, and I've explained this before and, and I have some friends who have done some more work on this, but you know, the difference in between generations is like, if I'm going to buy uh, a pen, I will buy a fountain pen. I love fountain pens. They're nice. There's a quality to them. And I will spend extra money on a nice fountain pen over buying a bunch of Bic disposable pens. I hate them. I hate them so much. <laughs> So, like, generationally, that's kind of where we come from. We appreciate something really well done and beautiful kind of for its own sake uh, rather than a more utilitarian approach. And so that's, I think, one reason why people leave evangelical churches that tend to be really big box churches. It feels kind of like you're a, a consumer, you know. Um, and uh, I think it's why we don't really like the inauthentic expressions of, um, 
of religion. So anyway, so yes, yeah, so it's very interesting. And that, that's probably, uh, I mean, we could do a whole lot more by way of a deep dive into the generational differences and, and all that. But um, I, I think what for our purposes right now, it's important to realize that in America, the family has kind of broken down in terms of its religious commitments. Um, and you hear this a lot. Like, so one thing that I hear from young parents, and I, I, I have to really control myself when they say this is, well, we're not going to baptize our kid because we want them to grow up and make that decision for themselves. That is a decision you're making for your kid by not baptizing them, right? That is, that is, that has ongoing implications for your child that you haven't baptized them. Whereas anyway, so, um, there's no neutrality there, you know, but for some reason parents have, and we were just talking about this the other night. Uh, We have some friends in the neighborhood who, um, one of them is a is a really non practicing Roman Catholic and married to a guy who's not really a, uh, religious at all. They have children, and she said something to Caroline about, "Yeah, I told my grandma, who was a devout Catholic, that you know I would baptize my children, and I haven't done that yet." And she was kind of, I think, trying to uh, see if maybe I would do the baptism, and I will, I would absolutely do the baptism, but not without a serious conversation. Hey, you're signing your kid up for something. You're taking on yourself a certain commitment. To raise your kid in the church. So I don't want to baptize the, your child and never see you again in the church. Um, but rather, this is a very serious thing um, that you're committing to do. And it falls on you. You know, if the child doesn't, isn't raised in the church, that's, that's on you. But we just don't seem to have that seriousness when it comes to, to religion. Right, right. Yes, we would never embrace that logic in any other capacity with our children. That's right. It, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, but for some reason, it's okay on that. Except their gender. That's true. That's true. Yes, yes. Um, so there are tons of places we could look in the scriptures that would help us correct our or not correct, but perhaps inform a response to this kind of familial breakdown in terms of religious practice. Um, And I thought we could maybe start in the Old Testament with the Israelites. You know, the Israelites, uh, as they're coming into the land and they're wandering the wilderness, I mean, God has done so many great things for them. And imagine being there and seeing the Red Sea parted, seeing the plagues, seeing the Egyptians destroyed, seeing the, the bitter water turned to pure water, uh, I mean, all of the, you know, being bitten by a snake and looking up at the, at the, at the bronze serpent and being healed. Um, and then finally entering the promised land. You know, I mean, you've been wandering for 40 years and you're finally there. And you cross over and you, you get a home uh, in, this, in this land that God has always been promising you. And, and then your children are born. And what the Old Testament understands, and I think we all understand this to some degree, is that the children didn't see those things. So they hear your stories about it, but they don't, they don't know necessarily. I mean, they weren't there. They didn't get bit by a snake. They didn't see the Red Sea part. So this is why Israel had a really robust liturgical and basically sacramental practice. I mean, think about the Passover meal, right? It was an anamnesis, a remembrance of what happened at the Red Sea, but it wasn't purely a, 
a thing that happens in the mind, like you're replaying a movie in the mind. It was an actual reliving. You actually gird up your loins. You actually sit at the table with your staff nearby just in case. You actually leave a seat for Elijah. You, all these wonderful traditions, really, it wasn't just about playing it like a movie in the mind. It was about bringing the past into the present, making your children relive those moments. Deuteronomy 4.9, God gives the instructions to the Israelites, only take heed and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Catechesis, teaching. And note that that starts with the parent. Keep yourself, keep your soul diligently, and then you can pass that on to your children. Deuteronomy 11, 18 to 19, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. It's a really serious responsibility. Again, it starts with you, but it flows out to the children. We were, um, you know, if you come to the 11 afterwards, Rowan, he wants to take the processional cross and he and I walk up and down a couple times. And so he sings these hymns. Caroline always sings hymns to them. And, uh, you know, I'm all, I always worry because her and I come from an evangelical background and we came into a liturgical sacramental world. And so for us, um, th- it was new. And so we had to learn a lot. It wasn't something we were raised with, you know. We had to kind of go the extra mile to learn. Well, why do we do that? What's going on here and there? And so, uh, you know, raising our kids in, in, in this tradition, my concern, which I, and I love our tradition, and I, I'm happy our children are being raised in it. I wouldn't have them being raised anywhere else. But my concern is always that they will not necessarily understand the whys because it's just what's around them and they don't. You know, sometimes you, you have to see things with fresh eyes to, to appreciate the meaning. And, um, and so Rowan, he was walking around our house with a crucifix, processing around. And I said, Rowan, who is, um, who is Jesus? And he said, um, one of his hymns, uh, Christ is Lord indeed. <laughs> I said, oh, that's good. That's good, right? So, you know, Caroline, every night she sings to the, these hymns to them, and they're being internalized. They're being internalized. They're picking them up. That's good. That's what we want. You know, they're, um, Rowan knows parts of the mass. I mean, he, I hear him say it sometimes, especially when we're in the chapel and it's a smaller space, you know. Um, but anyways, uh, it's, it's, it's good. You know, this, is, um, this becomes part of who we are, and it's, it's, we're hopefully passing that on to them so it becomes part of who they are. Um, daily office. We do morning and evening prayer most of the time together. And the boys are there, and they don't have to do every prayer because they can't read, but they do have to participate with the Lord's Prayer, and they do have to, they know a lot of the calls and responses, you know. And so over time, hopefully that will, um, that will pay off down the road. So the Old Testament, I, 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 what, what I'm trying to say is, is these are ways that we might embody what the Old Testament instructions to the Israelites are, that, that we are always kind of living in this rhythm ourselves, and then we pass that along to our children. The Pauline letters uh, also talk a lot about the family. Colossians 3.21 and Ephesians 6.4, he basically says the same thing. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That's Colossians. And Ephesians 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Provoke there is a Greek word to be quarrelsome. I think it means like don't nitpick at your children so that they become sad or, or they can't you know, go on anymore or even that they get angry at you. Um, and, and then you know, he emphasizes this idea of discipline and instruction. So that idea of teaching and the idea of disciplining. Hebrews 12.11 says, for, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Um, so you, like last night, Caroline had taken Rowan um, to the pool and Jude has not, he had an ear infection this week, so he was staying home. And it was about 4.30, which is usually what time we do evening prayer. So I said, all right, and Jude was playing Star Wars. He had the cape on and he dresses up all the time and he had a gun and he was you know, shooting and making noise. And I said, hey, Jude, I think it's time to do evening prayer. And uh, he said, uh, so I can keep playing? And I said, well, what do we do when we pray? what are we doing? And he said, we're talking to God. And I said, so which is more important right now? He said, talking to God. (laughs) And I said, so what do you think you should do? And I said, you can, you can play in a few minutes. It only takes, you know, 15 minutes and then you can play. And so he did. But you know, again, that idea that was not a pleasant decision for him to make, but it was the right decision to make. And hopefully as he makes that decision more and more, it becomes a habit for him. So there's this kind of idea, the parent needs to be, um, parents need to be encouraging and instructive and, and able to discipline, not overbearing. But then there's also responsibility from the children to the parent. Colossians 3.20, children obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. And Ephesians 6, similar uh, instructions, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. The book of Proverbs is another place um, where that is emphasized quite heavily. Scripturally, uh, you know, it always helps. I mean, these are kind of abstract concepts, right? Don't provoke your child. Uh, Teach them, train them, uh, discipline them. Uh, Children obey, you know. Well, what does that always look like? I mean, sometimes we get in specific instances where it becomes a little hard to figure out exactly what that looks like. But I think the scriptures give us the model of a family that we should all take encouragement from, and that is the the holy family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Um, because you have this idea that Mary is a new Eve, right? The, the, The recreation of the world begins with her saying yes to God, and then Jesus is the new Adam. So there's the new creation there, and and Joseph even, who doesn't get talked about as much, is such a wonderful example of what a husband should be, right? He's the protector, the provider. He's kind of quiet, but he's honorable, you know? And so as husbands, we can learn quite a bit from the example of St. Joseph. And as wives and mothers, we can learn much from the, the example of, our, of the Blessed Virgin. And, and of course, all of us can learn about what it means to be human from our Lord, um, but, you know, Mary as, Mary as so, so Joseph is protector and provider. Mary is, is nurturer. She's, um, she's, she's maternal. You know, there's, this, there's these kind of beautiful pictures in the Gospels of, of instances. I, like, I, I, they kind of go back and forth, you know, Joseph and, or Jesus and Mary sometimes. Like, I, like when she finds him in the temple after the three days and 
you know, you had your, me and your father worried sick. And Jesus goes, well, shouldn't you have known to look for me in my father's house? Uh, or, or, or at the wedding supper in John, you know, uh, Jesus says, it's not my time. And she goes, go ahead and do it. You know, she kind of nudges him in the right direction. Um, not that he was going in the wrong direction, but you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, so there's this beautiful kind of interplay. And it's important to know, to note that in the scriptures, there is no account of the, of the final words between Jesus and Mary. Like after the resurrection, there's no discussion of, of what their relationship looked like. There's no real, I mean, we know Mary was there at the cross, but we don't know, I mean, as he's walking up and the women of Jerusalem are there, I mean, do, what, what words would have been exchanged between the two of them? We, we just don't know. And this is why Simeon, you know, in, this, in the song, when, when he sees her, he tells her that a sword will pierce your own heart also. Um, that, that maternal caring, you know, being so, so, so loving your child that uh, whatever suffering they're going through is your suffering. You know, I mean, only a mother can really, I think, fully understand that. So there's this kind of beautiful, intimate picture of, of motherhood that she gives us. And then finally, I think it's important, you know, um, scripturally, the Proverbs are a really interesting place because they talk about wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom. And we think wisdom maybe in terms of abstract, uh, abstract categories again, but wisdom's not a, a concept so much as it is a person. I mean, scripturally, wisdom is Christ. And so the Proverbs are about how do you follow Christ? And one of those things is Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. So parents, do that. Train your child. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. It sounds like Solomon, writing Proverbs, knew what the data tells us now about church attendance, right? If the parents don't participate uh, or are perfunctory, then the odds that the child grows up that way are going to be really low, right? That they are committed. But if you train your child in the way he should go now, then he will not depart from it when he's old. And Proverbs twenty two fifteen tells us folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now we often that verse often gets uh, invoked as a as a defense of spanking, um, and I, I'm not necessarily against spanking, but I do think that the idea there and and the spare the rod, spoil the child uh, sayings is that is less about the beating and more about a shepherd's crook. Um, in other words, it's it's the use of good discipline to keep them from straying too far so you know maybe in certain situations spanking is the right discipline that's i think more of a family decision and you know your kid like i think jude if we could spank jude and he'd be fine paying a temporary you know physical discomfort but if i take video games away or like no tv for a week or something like that then that's way more devastating to him in terms of a punishment than a than a spanking um so anyways uh yes so discipline is very important. Um, of course, Mary and Joseph don't give us much by way of an example of disciplining because they had the perfect son. So I, what, I, what I think that the script... Oh, go ahead. We know Jesus was the perfect son. Right, but did they? Did they and some of his actions really irritate him because he's not doing what he should be. He's over there praying. Right. Right, right. Well, like, like the whole instance with the, with the temple, you know, it's like, well, you're not where you're, we thought you would be. 
And so we've got three days of being worked up trying to find it. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, who knows what the dynamics were like uh, for the rest of his childhood. I mean, I do think probably, I mean, just like anybody, people get annoyed with other people. And we know Jesus made, uh, you know, he annoyed a, a number of people like the Pharisees, for example. Um, so it's possible that they would have gotten annoyed. Though I think that Ma- uh, Mary, given her kind of special grace, uh, probably was able to, I, I, we can't psychologize, like who knows what it, what it was like to be Mary, but um, I don't think she would have ever crossed the line to where she was, you know, sinning in the way that she was treating Jesus. But yeah, probably some like raised eyebrows at least, you know. Sometimes our boys do things. Where it's not like you're not in trouble. That's just really weird. <laughs> so uh, the home should be this place then of instruction, of teaching, of passing on the faith. And that's why I think that the home as monastery is actually a really good perspective uh, to think about uh, our domestic life. Now, one of the geniuses of Anglicanism is the ascetical system of the Book of Common Prayer. Not just the Book of Common Prayer, but the ascetical system that goes along with it. David's talked about this before, um, that the, the idea of morning and evening prayer did not originate with the English reformers. It actually existed in Spain a, bef- a couple hundred years, I think, before the Reformation started. They took the, the prayers that the monks would pray, and they simplified them and gave them to the people in the, in the area. And so uh, those people, the, the, the idea being, you can do this. Now, you're not a monk, so you don't need to do it seven times a day like monks do, because that's their job. But you could do it in the morning and in the evening. You could do it before work and after work. And, of course, in the English system, you know, you, you have one parish church in every parish. And on your way to work in the morning, you're walking right by it. So you stop in, you do morning prayer like we did this morning, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And then you go about your day. And then on your way home, you pass the church. You stop by, you go in, and 20, 30 minutes, you do evening prayer. And then you go home and enjoy dinner. But even then, the prayer book, our prayer book, still has a certain form. So if, if, if a full evening prayer or a full morning prayer is too much, there are shorter versions for families in the back of the prayer book. The idea, again, being you can do this. Now, the unfortunate thing that happened during the English Reformation is the monasteries were dissolved. This was a political thing, you know. Um, They had not been the best places prior to Henry, and also Henry wanted some money, uh, so he dissolved and took all the gold and and all that from the monasteries. But the the real genius of Anglicanism is not in the demonasticization of England, but rather the monasticization of the laity, which the Book of Common Prayer allows us to do. It allows us to live lives of prayer, right? So we come to church, we receive communion on Sundays, and then the rest of the week, we get live in this rhythm of morning and evening prayer. Um, David Smith and I, like uh, Martin Thornton, who's an English uh, ascetical theologian, who talks about uh, communion being the big, thick uh, poles that, that really anchor the fence, and the daily office being those littler pieces that kind of join the big poles together. So once a week, you're doing communion, but then... In between, you're doing morning and evening prayer, the prayers of the church. And, of course, you're also, alongside of all that, developing a really robust private prayer life, maybe sometimes in, in conjunction with a spiritual director who might be the priest of your parish. Those are the rails on the fence. Those are the rails on the fence, exactly, exactly. So there's kind of this beautiful picture of all these things working together. And so the idea being this, a serious spiritual life does not require you to flee the world and go live in a monastery. You can do it. It's a very humanistic picture, right? You can do it. You can do it. Yeah. Our daughter Shannon, 
Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's, uh, well, and you get that picture. I mean, the Israelites had to be fed with the manna from heaven. And so we come to church because we have to be fed from the, with the manna from heaven. And, that, and then at the end of the service, depart in peace, it's the sending out. That's where the term mass comes from, the Latin word that means to send. So at the end of the service, you're being sent out. Okay, take what you've done here the receiving of Christ, the offering of yourself on the altar, and take that out into the world. And so whatever context you inhabit, whatever job you do, whatever vocations you have, those need to be transformed by what we've done here. Absolutely. And so the prayer book and the Anglican approach is uh, that you can take that home and that you can, your home, it's not church and home as two separate places, but rather that church comes into your home. Right. That, that um, you know, especially now, I mean, you know, we are a commuter church. You know, we got people who live in Columbia. We got people who live in Pasadena. We got people who live in Glen Burnie. And so people come from all over here. So it's like if we did morning prayer every day, nobody if we did it here, nobody would show up most of the time, um, which is why we do. I, I like to do the offices when we're when we have things going on. You know, you'll know we do that like Thursday night summer study. We do evening prayer before we start. Um, but the genius here is that you can, you can participate in the prayers of the church at home. You don't have to be here. You can do it. And so the, the home becomes a monastery when it becomes a, 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 first a place of prayer. Because, because that is really what anchors and teaches us. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What we pray is what we believe. There is no theology that exists in its, on its own. Liturgical theology is the only theology. So we begin with lives of prayer because those are the most instructive things that we can have. And we don't always understand it all at once, but if you sit with it and if you practice it and if you make it a habit, you do begin to see things differently. Um, even, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of doing the same right all, all the time is I never noticed you know, that opening sentence, or I never noticed that part of the prayer of confession. You know, it just hits you differently uh, depending on, on when you approach it. And so, um, so, the, so that, that life of prayer is really the foundation of everything. But then, you know, in the home, as a, as a monastery, there's this idea of, I think, example. You know, it allows your kids to see you doing these things, not just the priest or the monks. Though that is one, I, I do wish, I wish we as Anglicans had a more robust monastic. Like, because in the, in, the, in the Catholic Church, for example, parishes and monasteries or convents might be connected so that you have monks and nuns who are there. And so kids grow up and they know that's an option for me. Um, I'm called to a life of celibacy. This is how I could pursue it. But for us, we don't really have that visibility as much with monastics. We do have monastics, just they're not usually as visible. Um, 
But, but I do think it's good for, the, for children to see their parents take this seriously. I remember walking in on my grandma. My grandma was not the most religious person as far as I could tell. I mean, she went to church sometimes, but I remember walking in one time and she was reading the Bible and I was sort of, I was young and I, that really stood out to me, you know, that she was actually sitting down and reading it. Um, so I think that, uh, that when, we, when children see that, it's good for them. It's good for them. So there's just a, a purely example. And then there's the teaching aspect, right? I mean, if you, the liturgy is the gospel being presented to us. You know, there's the call to worship. We're being brought in together into the ark that is the church. Um, we have this procession come by. Um, people bow as the priest and the, and the crucifix walk by. You know, I mean, every little part is instructive. And so, uh, you know, we don't even always need to write some new curriculum or some, uh, you know, interactive textbook. It's like the liturgy is a, a living text. You know, you come to church and you begin to see all these different dimensions. And so being able to work with our kids. Hey, why do you think that Father West lifts the host up after he says the words of institution? What's going on there? You know, and talk, having that conversation. I asked Jude last night, Jude, what, what are we eating and drinking at communion? And he said, the body and blood of Christ. I said, oh, good. You've been paying attention to the liturgy. Well, I mean, at his age, he's not going to. He understands this is appropriate to him, I think. You know, it's, uh, it's, um, he's not going to tell you his opinion on transubstantiation versus trans-elementation or something like that. But he does, I, and, but at that point, at that age, he doesn't have to, right? All you have to know right now is that this is the body and blood of Christ. And so that's why we genuflect when we cross the plane of the altar. And that's why we, you know, cross ourselves when the, uh, when the host is elevated and all that. Um, and so that's what's important is that, you know, that, that, that teaching is happening. And then as he gets older, we'll have him read some, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas or something, and he'll figure it out. <laughs> It's also important to remember, and, and, and if you go to 9.30 ever, you, you will have heard this, because at 9.30, at the end of the service, we do three prayers for the community, um, one prayer for birthdays, one prayer for anniversaries, and one prayer to remember the departed. And in the prayer uh, for, um, for marriages, there is a line that says that their home may be a haven of blessing and of peace. Well, what, that is about as monastic as you can be. I mean, what is a, mon- a monastery, a, a place that should be tranquil, that should be stable, that should be peaceful? And so our homes should be that as well. And that, that begins with the harmony between husband and wife that we were talking about earlier, right? Uh, the disorder is, you know, the, the ship where the captain and the pilot don't agree. But order is this beautiful, everybody has their own part to play. The kids have their own part to play. The wife has her own part to play. The husband has his own part to play. And so, um, so it, becomes, it becomes a kind of monastic. And this, this is really symbolized in corporate worship, right? Every, with one voice. That was a big emphasis of the, of the Oxford Movement guys. We sing with one voice. It's not a bunch of individual voices, but together we have one voice as the church. So the goal is not to stand out in, in inappropriate ways. It's to, it's to play your part really well. And so the home becomes a place of peace when it becomes a place of worship, when it's centered around prayer. And so it's important to remember uh, as we kind of end the, um, as we end this session that the marriage relationship and the family relationship are backdrops against which the gospel is played. These are 
instances, really the first place where ministry happens. And that's true not just for priests with families. That's true of anybody with a family. Your primary job is to minister to your spouse and to your kids. And so all of us have these, these responsibilities that come with being part of a family that, that contribute to this beautiful harmony in our home. But it's also important to remember that no family is an island. No family is an island. That uh, the family unit, while uh, the backbone of society, I believe, is what um, I think John Paul II said, and I think actually John Chrysostom says that in his book too. It's the backbone of society. Um, it's it's a place of of learning and teaching. But the but the family needs to be plugged into a larger context, which is the church. And so uh, so encouraging participation in the church is going to be really important. Um, and we'll talk about that in the next session. I feel like there was one other thing I just thought to say, and I forgot what I was going to say. Which means it must not have been that important. <laughs> oh, I was going to tell you the story. I was going to tell you a story. When I was at Liberty, uh, so I, I got ordained a deacon while I was still finishing up sem- seminary, and we had, I had to take a class called Pastoral Leadership. It was part of my seminary degree. The professor was a really nice guy. Baptist pastor, retired, had been in a big Baptist church in Northern Virginia somewhere. And we got to the part of the, of the class where they talked about the ordinances. Um, and so communion and, and baptism. And he looked at me, I was sitting there in my collar, and he said, so Wes, since you all do it every week, communion every week, how do you make it feel special for people? Um, and, uh, and then he proceeded to talk about how when he was at his church, they would do communion twice a year. Whenever him and the elders decided it was time, and it was never on a Sunday, it was always during the week, and they would dim the lights in the church, and they would have different stations set up around the church, and as you felt led, the husband would take his family up to the table and give them communion, like he was the priest, which is kind of what I'm trying to say is not a good, great picture of, of things. In other words, that the, that the family... While they worship together, and that is important, and there is room for husband as kind of leader, you know, shepherd of the family, uh, that's important. But uh, they need to be plugged into the church as God has ordered it. Um, and so that means, you know, I mean, that's why, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but that's why, like, uh, we call priest father. There is a paternal aspect to that. And so even the father in a family needs to have a spiritual father to whom they submit, learn, and or can be disciplined by. So anyways, uh, we'll talk more about that in the next session. Are there any questions um, or, or comments about the idea of Christian family? All right, let's, uh, let's just do a short break maybe real quick, and then we'll, um, we'll come back for our third session about the parish.